Hey everybody, Muscle Intelligence Podcast, Ben Pekulski. As always, from this podcast around living your greatest life in a body you love, offering the framework of the six pillars of lean, healthy, and muscular physique. And today we're going to talk about your mind, your brain, and how it works. Dr. John Medina joins me today to talk about his amazing theories and his amazing book series called Brain Rules. So if you haven't heard of Brain Rules, John has been around for a long time. Wrote Brain Rules originally in 2008 and rewrote in 2014 with an updated version. It's still an amazing resource for us where John blends his incredible stories and insights with neuroscience and psychology. The conversation today goes deep into understanding what we need to do to optimize brain function and his 12 pillars of an optimized mind. We talk a little bit about anxiety, a little bit about depression, and maybe how we can start viewing those in a way that's different. We also have some really great insights into parenting. I think this may have been some of the greatest insights I've ever got into parenting, giving us some really concrete, actionable items that we can apply right now to being a better version of ourselves and better parents. And I think for anyone out there who is a parent, that can often be our greatest stress. So without further rambling for me, I hope you enjoy the podcast with Dr. John Medina. And I want to give a shout out to our sponsor for this podcast, Bubs Naturals. Bubs is the best MCT powder and collagen I have ever used, and that is not lip service. You will notice a difference when you try it, just like every single person who tried the olive oil also has given us a shout out and said, this is incredible. It's the nectar of the gods, right? Some people say that about wine. <laughs> I say that about olive oil. But Bubs Naturals is going to give you guys the highest quality MCT and collagen. And some people ask for me to explain the benefits I received from MCT. So there's a recent study that came out showing that MCT can actually significantly help with blood sugar regulation and insulin resistance. Interesting enough, dropped blood sugar by 17%. And super interesting observation that I was not aware of allowed your brain to stay actively using ketones. So MCT can be quickly converted into ketones and not stored as energy, not stored as fat, which is great. I love it in my morning coffee. I usually put one to two scoops, usually about one scoop per cup. And I try to have smaller cups so it allows me to enjoy more. And I definitely feel a kick in my brain and my focus. And I think it's a great replacement for almond milk or regular milk. And I certainly hope no listeners of this podcast using soy milk <laughs> by now. So MCT is a great replacement. And I also add some collagen in there, usually in my morning coffee and into my pre-workout shake. About 15 grams into that pre-workout shake has been shown to really improve your joint health and decrease pain and inflammation at the joints, as well as having other massive benefits like uh, being a great source of the amino acid glycine, which is going to contribute to hair, skin, and nail growth as well as support the detoxification pathway via glutathione, as well as glycine being an amazing amino acid to inhibit the brain, meaning slow you down before bed and when it's time to start tuning down. Anyways, guys, enough rambling for me. Head over to bubsnaturals.com. Use the code intelligence to get yourself 20% off. And this is not going to last a long time. Jump on it. Nobody gives you 20% off because it's such a small profit margin business. 20% off, use the code intelligence, bubsnaturals.com, B-U-B-S-N-A-T-U-R-L-A-L-S, bubsnaturals.com, code intelligence, 20% off, get hooked up. Enjoy the show with Dr. John Medina. My thing is psychiatric disorders. 
are very interested in how the brain processes audio information, given as how so many psychiatric disorders have audio hallucinations associated with them. So figuring all that is a kind of an interest of mine. Interesting. Do they explore it with like an anechoic chamber or with different music or, or just different directions or all of the above? Well, part of all of the above, I don't think he's got an anechoic chamber. That would be more Seth Horowitz down at the University of Virginia, because you usually use those chambers to study bat location, and echolocation. But Bob's really interested in just music per se. So he's got a suite of fMRI machines and is looking specifically at why is it that music can have such a strong emotional response? What is its link to memory? He's got a, a stage, or at least he used to, an auditorium where you can actually jack in headphones. And I think it's about two or 300 person auditorium and a lot of really good stuff there. So I'm a fan of Bob's, I guess I have to say. Very cool. So your primary area of focus now is, as you mentioned, some maybe brain psychological ailments. Yeah. Well, my research interests are the genetics of psychiatric disorders. Yeah. So I spend a long time thinking about how the brain develops in the womb and then what happens at the level of cell and gene. Something screws up and years later you get a psychopathology. So I have to speak several dialects of brain science to be able to do that. So my home base certainly is the biochemistry, but I'm also interested in the cellular biology. So that's going to be your imaging. And then finally, the behavioral work, which is the tip of the spear for a psychiatric disorder, have to be a fairly competent behaviorist also. And anybody that does this for a living is, has those three competencies. And I've been happy to be blessed to be in the field for, geez, I think since about 1988 when my postdoc started. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> been a while. So from your experience, what percentage of psychological or psychiatric disorders begins in the womb? Like, is it mostly genetic or is it a combination of genetic and expression? Well, it depends. All human behavior can be thought of as having both nature and nurture components. Yeah. So the nature would be, in fact, the metaphor I usually use when I'm lecturing is to say that, uh, think of a, because they'll ask me a question that you just asked, how much of it is, you know, embedded in the DNA and how much of it is in the social environment and can they be, you know, do they affect each other? And so I usually say, well, tell me, the boat has a port side and a starboard side. Which side of the boat is responsible for making the boat float? And usually I get a couple of grids because, of course, where they're, where I'm headed is, well, wrong question. <laughs> you yeah. need both sides to make sure. it float, right? So, but, but uh, yeah, I, I understand, but, you know, going down the path of like what variables have you identified as far as the developmental or the environmental that are really causing these things to manifest? Because I, I would assume that there's probably people out there who have the same genetic expression, but don't have the same phenotypic expression. For sure. You have a, a really good example might be something that's called the NPY peptide, which you may be familiar with. NPY peptide, there's a variant on there that if you have this genetic variant of NPY peptide, you are stress resistant. You're the Tom Hanks in a Saving Private Ryan scenario. You are a person that you would want to be with if there was a stressful situation at work. These people just seem to be stress resistant. And there's a strong genetic component to it. If you have that gene, that variant of that gene, you are much more stress resistant than the general population. That doesn't mean you are stress-proof. You're not immune from it. So the nurture side of this can sweep over you. In severe trauma, everybody gets hurt, but the recovery rates are better and cognition is better for people who have that NPY variant. On the other hand, there is another genetic variant. It's in the serotonin transporter protein gene family. This is a Dunedin study done in New Zealand originally a long time ago. This variant does the exact opposite. 
it confers on you stress sensitivity. You are much more likely to get a depression or an anxiety in what we just call TTEs or typical traumatic events, more so than the general population. You are stress sensitive. And so one of the things that you can look at if asking questions about the gene work, let's say you knew you had a baby and you knew that baby had that serotonin transporter, the one that makes you stress sensitive. You would parent that kid very differently than you would with some kid who was born with an NPY peptide variant because genetically they're set up to do different things. Both can be extremely healthy. A kid with a serotonin transporter protein variant that makes them stress sensitive can grow up to be healthy and normal and psychiatrically typical in every way as long as their environment is different than in a, uh, an environment that would be more stressful. So you still have nature-nurture components, but definitely the nature side can bias you towards certain behaviors given everything else you can. Interesting. So if someone has that serotonin transporter protein genotype, uh-huh. does it always express? Or is it the type of thing that needs a certain, maybe you know heterozygous versus homozygous, or does it need certain environmental exposures, I guess, to sure. allow it to express? Yeah, you probably need more environmental exposures, but it was shown, how it was discovered was the fact that there was a population in the Dunedin study. This is a a, a giant longitudinal study that had been going on for years and years, that there was a population of kids who were suicidal and who had actually committed suicide or had a large propensity for an anxiety disorder, so affective disorders. And it was discovered that there was a linkage between those two. That's how it was first discovered. But as with all behaviors, you're always talking about probabilities. Different, uh, if you are parented a certain way, uh, you might enter into a traumatic event later in life, but because your parenting, your parenting experience was so good and so powerful, you end up being fairly resilient anyway. That's one way to look at it. Figuring out on an, statistics don't apply to individuals, certainly. So figuring out on a a person by person basis, who's going to respond badly to a stress and who is not going to respond badly to a stress is currently beyond our technology. Very interesting. So that just brings up this very simple or maybe complex, extremely complex question of of your saying, if you're parented really well, Uh, um, whether or not we were, it'd be very interesting to start exploring what that actually means. So I don't expect you to be an expert in parenting, but I think that from a neurological brain science perspective, I'd love to explore how you would define great parenting as far as allowing the brain to develop optimally. Oh, I'd be happy to. uh, In fact, I wrote a book, Brain Rules for Baby, where I talk a lot about what does the cognitive neuroscience of parenting look like. This is an extraordinary story, Ben, mostly because it's a story of two researchers, Diana Baumrind, who did her work primarily in the mid-60s, and John Gottman, who did his work primarily in the late 90s, asking really the same question, what's a good parent? They both started out with with a question, can we all agree on what a good kid looks like? And the thought was, no one was going to agree on that because that's so individually understood. That turns out not to be the case. There's a lot of people, and I'm speaking specifically of North America now, the, uh, who absolutely agree on what a good kid looks like. And there's simple things like, I don't want my kid to grow up to be a serial killer. I want my kid to have a stable family life, that kind of stuff. So the question you can ask, next question, and Diana did this first. She was able to show, and John confirmed later, that good parenting, or just parenting in general, rises or falls as the result of a single, I'll use the word battlefield, of a single, or a pitch, if you will, or a gridiron, a single place to play. And it's this. 
what a parent does when their kid's emotions run hot directly predicts how that kid will turn out years later. So that's a really big thing to say, yep. but it's so it probably needs to be unpacked. Diana found, and John confirmed, and like I say, the distance between these research efforts are 20 and 30 years, and Diana's from Berkeley, John's from Seattle, so they're actually working in different populations, found the same thing, found that in North America, parents will choose one of four behavioral styles when they're reacting to their kid, and only one of those styles will create a psychiatrically stable child that everybody says they want. Would you like to go through those, Ben? I would love to go through it. That sounds fantastic. Well, let me give an example then by, um, let's suppose that you have a little girl and she's two years old or three years old and her name is Emily. And Emily's had a goldfish that just died. So this is going to be a traumatic event. Her feelings, Emily's feelings are running hot. And so when Emily comes to you as a parent, what should you do? And the big question, of course, with Diana and John was, well, what do we do? And one of the four behaviors that is called, when three of which you should not do, <laughs> the first one is called dismissing behavior, to use John's word. Dismissing behavior is you look at Emily and you say, you know, your fish has died. This is no big deal. We'll go to Costco or go to Petco and get you another fish. This is no big deal. Run along and play Emily. Well, the reason why that's called dismissing behavior is that you have completely dismissed this child's extraordinary emotional response to her first reaction to primary grief. You've given her no tools. She has no idea what to do with that. And she's starting to say to herself, well, if this is not such a big deal, how come I feel so bad? So what you've done is that you've dismissed the child. If you do that on a regular basis, you have outcomes that uh, no parent is, is particularly happy with. But there's a second style, which is also fairly toxic and is related to the first. John calls it disapproving style. Diana, I think, called it authoritarian style. And it's this. Disapproving style is this. It's a lot like dismissing that you say, hey, kid, Emily comes to you and says, my goldfish has died. And you say, this is no big deal. We'll go to Petco and get you another one. But you add, if you're going to be a disapproving style, you're going to throw an emotional stone at Emily, because what you're going to say is this, quit being a baby, Emily. You know, death is a part of life. Man up, okay? Be a man. We'll go to Petco. And the result is exactly the same, but with a bit of a, an angry twist. And it's this, she still has been given no tools with which to deal with her feelings. And she will say to herself, why, if this is not such a big deal, then why do I feel so bad? And why is it such a big, there must be something wrong with me. And the kid internalizes it. The third toxic style, probably the worst, is called laissez-faire parenting style in John Gottman's terminology. Laissez-faire parenting style is a complete abdication of the parental role. In one particular case, when I saw an example of this socially, of a parent who was practicing laissez-faire parenting style, if you asked her, this parent, say it's a mom, hey, let's say you had a kid, Emily, and Emily's goldfish just died. What would you say? And a typical laissez-faire response, Ben, is to say, I hate it when pets die. I would go for a run. And that's the end of the reaction. Emily isn't even in the picture because the parent is so consumed with his or her own feelings and reactions that the only strategy that he or she comes up with is to try and fix the cognitive dissonance 
in their own heart. That's why it's called laissez-faire, because you're completely disengaged from the parent. They grow up to be lousy students, these kids do. They don't have a strong emotional regulation. And once again, they've been given no tools with which to deal with the primary grief. So three out of the four behaviors are really, they're not great. And they cluster statistically, which is why they're sometimes called parenting styles, because these behaviors seem to co-segregate. Okay. There is good news here, and perhaps we should get yeah, to Give us the good one. <laughs> this, Ben, is what you should do, at least according to both Diana Baumrind, like I said, who did her work in the mid-60s, and John in the late 90s, and still came up with the same thing. John calls the proper parenting style that is going to give, and I just used the word proper, so I put a value judgment on it, but what I really mean is this is the type of reaction that you should do if you want your kids to grow up to be what everybody says is a good kid. All right, it's this. You look at Emily, and you say to Emily, she just, just told you her goldfish dies, and she's broken up about it. Come here, Emily. I'm going to give you a hug. It's awful when pets die. And you sit there, and you hold Emily, and you cry with her. So what you are doing is you're communicating a very particular type of empathy. And it's okay to show even your own emotions about this, particularly if you really love Emily. You're not done. That's just the start. But what you're doing in this particular case is that you're validating the fact that this is a big deal. And it's such a big deal that it can reach across Emily from your cranium to my cranium and outcry with you, or at least have empathy with you. So what you're starting to do is, is to give the kid a line of safety, a lifesaver perhaps. Okay, but you're not done. That's fine. Empathy is powerful, insight, safety, and whatnot. But still, Emily has no tools. So you're going to have to give her, eventually, a tool. So you'd say something like this, Ben. You'd say, Emily, you know, things that you really love, when they go away, you're going to feel a lot like this all the time. We call it grief. Emily, I want to tell you about grief. Grief is like a tide. You can sit in the ocean, and it will come in, and it will clobber you. And then, Emily, here's the weird thing. Then the tide will go away, and for a little while, you're going to feel okay. But you know what, Emily? You're not done. Because what's going to happen next is that the tide will come back in. These feelings will come back in just like a tide, and it will clobber you, it will hit you again. And then it will ebb again, and then it will hit you again and back and forth. Emily, every time that tide clobbers you, I want you to find me so you and I can have a hug about it and give a good cry. I will tell you, Emily, eventually the waves get gentler. Eventually they recede altogether and your goldfish will end up being a bittersweet, maybe even happy memory. But that's not for right now. Right now, this is what you deal with. That, Ben, is a superstar parent right there. Emily's feelings are fully engaged and you have begun to give Emily tools about how to deal with grief for the next time another goldfish ends up dying. If you arc that over a 10 to 15 year parenting experience where a child is in the midst of an emotional maturity in that environment, they grow up to be the best kids in the world. They get the best grades. They are the most emotionally stable. They tend to have great friends. Their force rate is lowered. They tend to have less substance and alcohol abuse issues. All kinds of things have been measured, wow. asking questions about what you do with the great power of emotion coaching related specifically to empathy and tool giving. I feel like I need to walk around with a cheat sheet of John Medina metaphors in my back pocket of like the, the, the tide coming in. Like, I'm, I'm sure that's not going to come to me in the moment of, you know, my child being in duress. So are all, are all of these examples you give in, in Brain Rules for Baby? Yes, they most certainly are. I wrote about them also in another book called Attack of the Teenage Brain, 
where we're taking a look at what a teenager is looking like with those emotional responses, but how a teenager actually turns out, or how a kid actually turns out, you can best see in their teen years. So I review the work of Diana Baumrein. Diana did it first, so she gets the first credit. Awesome, John. So I, I loved your book, Brain Rules, and that's why I really wanted to have you on the show and chat a little Thank bit about what it looks like to optimize brain function. So that, that book was originally written in 2008, is that correct? That's right. Uh-huh. We did uh-huh. an update, I think, about eight years later. Yeah. So I'd love to go through, you know, some best practices for people living who are already living a healthy life. So my audience is, I'm going to say, of the upper echelon as far as health and desire to live their greatest life. It's not just uh-huh. about muscle building, you know, relatively active, eat rel- relatively well, super aware of the necessity of sleep and, and management of stress. And, and But what I really wanted to go sure. through is just this reality that we're living in of, this extremely stressed society and ultimately everyone having the desire to uh-huh. live a happy life, to have a, a brain that serves us and ultimately sure. we have access to our, our words and our thoughts and, and deeper level thinking and ultimately maybe higher level consciousness. And I want to bring you on to talk a little bit about what are all the things, maybe best practices you've come across that you know people can implement that are going to really move the needle in their life as far as the ability to uh-huh. have a, an exceptional brain. Do you have a particular topic you'd like to start with, Ben? Or sh- well, maybe some here. of the best practices. So yeah, just some of the best practices that you've come across that people should be following or implementing in a day-to-day life. What are the needle movers? Well, let's just, uh, we'll start with probably the big one. You, you mentioned the current climate in which we reside, and it's stressful for sure. The political climate in the United States here particularly is stressful, <laughs> put it mildly. Sure. We've got a global warming issue that is stressful, and now we've got ourselves a brand new set of infections that we have to deal with that is currently raging around the planet. So lots of stress. Okay. What do we know about stress and what do we know that our stress reduction techniques? Maybe we get started with that and then we'll go, one is what I'll call the not usual suspect. And then we can go through the usual suspect exercise diet and uh, a very particular type of mindfulness. So here's the weird thing about stress. It wasn't until about 25 years ago that we actually had a definition of stress it would make sense to guys like me who work with test tubes all day. And one of the biggest reasons why, you can make the strong case, Ben, that stress hurts learning, stress hurts productivity, stress hurts your happiness. Actually, under severe conditions, stress can actually cause brain damage. But the question, one of the great confounders before we could get to a definition of stress, one of the great confounders was, not all stress is bad for you. Actually, some stress is good for you. Not all stress causes brain damage. So that's a variable. A second confounder is this. Stress is very individually experienced. Some people love jumping out of airplanes. That for them is a recreation. Others, that's their worst nightmare. But whether it's a recreational event for you or your worst nightmare is so individually understood. like me crazy trying to figure out how to navigate aspects of that and what's going to creating stressors in people's life and who's not. The third one is the most interesting to me because if you give me a physiological panel, a physiological workup, and you've done it under stressed conditions and then you give me another panel where somebody was experiencing intense pleasure and you blind me to it and you just say, hey, John, I want you to tell me who was really stressed and who was really having a good time. And I'll look at those two panels and then I will look back at you and say, I don't know. I don't know which one is under stressful conditions, and I don't know which person is feeling pleasure. And the reason why I don't is because they are identical. (laughs) One person is not stressful for another. Some stress is actually good for you, and you've got physiology that's not really helping. It took us a while to get to a type of stress that we could measure, and now we have one. 
And because we have one, it, it produces a very, it's a piece of advice that usually isn't given, but I will tell you the unifying idea and then the practical what to do next Monday that comes from it. It turns out that the big deal has to do not with the presence of a stressful situation, an aversive stimulus. It has to do with your feelings of control over the aversive stimulus. Those feelings of control are the things that either get you or make you be able to deal with stress well. The more out of control you feel over the stressors coming at you, out of control is measured in two ways, both the severity of the stress and the frequency of the stress coming at you. But the more out of control you feel over those two variables, the more likely you are to enter into the type of stress that hurts you that predicts later affective disorder issues that can actually cause brain damage if it's done severely enough. So it wasn't the stress, Ben. It was feeling in control of the stress that got you. And from immediately comes a piece of advice about that. When you're thinking about stress management for your life, one of the first things you should do is to make a list of all the things that bug you and then rate your feelings of control over what bugs you, a level of control. If you're in a, a business, for example, you might be tasked with doing a job, a particular job, but you've not been given the budget to do that job. And you know darn well you're going to be evaluated on the basis of you getting that job done. Well, you're out of control. You can't generate more money out of it. So your job might be a stressor and the feeling of control might be a 10. That might be an awful stress. Another stressor might be, well, you know, I had a big pizza yesterday, so maybe I should have some broccoli tonight. Well, you have complete control over that. That might be an aversive stimulus, too, in the sense that maybe you like pizza a little too much. But you can actually cook some broccoli tonight, and it's not like a budget at work. I mean, you can actually have control over that. So that would be a lower level of control. And the piece of advice is this. Figure out all the things that bug you for which you have little control over and start working not on getting rid of the stimulus, but on being able to control aspects of the aversion. That seems to work as a better strategy for just in general. So the psychological component of that, this work actually comes right out of Marty Seligman's work with learned helplessness at the University of Pennsylvania, where he was the first to show that if you keep somebody in a stressful situation and give them no control over it, that's the type of stress that you can actually measure and that really hurts the brain. There's so much value in that. I wish people had explained that, you know, in the 17-year-old user manual when you're you know, learning to <laughs> navigate your teenage years, right? Wouldn't that have been, wouldn't that have been, I guess that's what's in your book for teenagers, I'm sure. Yeah, um, totally. Yeah. yeah, because I mean, that's such a superpower ultimately, right? Because you know, ultimately, I think if you think deeply on things, most things in your life, you probably have some level of control over, obviously not all, but, sure. but most. Sure. And uh, if you just start to realize, like, yeah, I just need to take control over this situation, you can certainly now no longer be a victim to that stress and now just completely change your perspective. And that's Well, one parenting strategy you can give for teenagers is to simply ask them, hey, what do you feel out of control over today? <laughs> they could probably give you a laundry list as opposed to asking them how their day was. It, parents who have a, a general knowledge of the control issues in their teenager's life usually do better, Ben, in parenting the kid because they go to specific issues that they can work out together. And if the teen feels like you are an ally as opposed to an inspector of what's going on in their life, i.e., you're deeply concerned over, you know, I feel out of control with my grades, for example. I feel out of control because my girlfriend just broke up with me and that's never happened to me before and I hate it. 
<laughs> Cue the grief response, Emily. That's another goldfish, man. Right. <laughs> yeah. the same idea, right? I'm out of control. I can't do anything with this. <laughs> that as a parenting strategy is something I recommend to audiences when I speak about how to parent your teens. Wow. So, so useful. I think, gosh, I think every human being could benefit from that. And I think I'm going to go home and start making a list of all the things that I feel stress over. Cause I mean, <laughs> yeah, really, I mean, it seems like a pretty yeah. simple approach, right? Well, the great joy of this is that everything I just said is evidence-based. This is not an opinion. You know, Marty has done some great work in the acolytes. He actually created a whole movement in psychology called the positive psychology, positivist movement, simply because he had worked with depression for a long period of time. But when he realized that control was going to be the big issue, well, that itself gave him as a researcher control over this bucking bronco of a research project, right? Same idea. <laughs> well, it just, cool. make, it just makes so much sense, right? It seems relatively logical that if I feel out of control, then my brain tends to spiral out a little bit and, and, yeah. and you know, your brain just tends to go down the rabbit hole of all the things that could potentially happen rather than reality. And that, as we know, sure. that's obviously the worst case scenario, right? It's, right? it's not always about what happens to you, but how you, you decide to perceive it. Well, if we take a look at the two big things in the affective disorder bucket, anxiety and depression. They're both are related to control. With depression, you feel like you could be stressed, but if you're not depressed, you'll say, okay, I'm, I'm stressed right now, I'm depressed right now, but eventually things will get better. So if there's a level of control that keeps you from slipping into a depression. What depression is, things are bad right now, things will never get better. Underline the word never. That's the thing that locks you down for a depression because a depression, there is no way out. The control is completely gone. You are, in fact, a bug being pinned to a board by a pin, and you're, you're just helpless there. With anxiety, it's slightly different, although it's a similar set of ideas, and that is, oh, my God, this could happen to me. Now, it may not have happened to you yet. Anxiety is often reacting to a ghost, not to something that's real, but you're projecting. You know, I, I'm not going to go on this airplane because I'm going to get sick with a coronavirus might be an anxiety that you would have. I can't walk over bridges because I'm scared of bridges. Well, that's all feelings of control. So the whole idea of being able to get more in control of the things that are bugging you has tremendous benefits in a large swath of the human experience. You brought up depression, John. I know you're an avid studier of that topic, and I'd love to hear you know, maybe what some of your major discoveries are and then what people can do who are suffering with that. And I'm, I'm sure we don't want to get into the realm of prescribing any type of relief modalities, but certainly just starting to explore what people may want to look at to start optimizing any symptoms of, of potential depression. Yeah. And that's a good point because I need to make clear to your audience, I'm not an MD, I'm a PhD. I'm a molecular biologist. I study this at the level of cell and gene, but I'm not a therapist. I work with a lot of therapists, certainly, and I was part of a continuing medical education unit for a long time that signs off on psychiatric licenses. So I feel comfortable in the world of therapy and genes and cells, but I'm not a therapist. So anybody in the audience that is suffering from depression, one of the best things you could do is to get yourself to a therapist and, and get started working on it and utilize anything I'm about to say only as advice from the research community, not as therapeutic instruction. Okay. Absolutely. All right. If that's clear, then let's get started. Like I say, depression Probably there are both nature and nurture components to it, Ben. You know, there's that starboard and port side of the, of the ship. We know that for some, the genetic input into depression can be strong. In fact, it runs in families. 
the thing that has been so confounding to us is that after all these years, we still don't have a gene or even series of genes. It's probably a polygenic behavior. To this day, we don't have tons of things that we can look at that say, yes, if you have this display, then this depression will occur. How about from a level of neurochemistry? Is there something sort of catch you there? Is there something from a level of neurochemistry that's very, is it low serotonin or is there very particular chemical signatures that are associated with it? Yeah, serotonin is the biggie, but serotonin is the biggie because it's the best studied. (laughs) You know, we've had these SSRIs for a while too that would allow us to get at it. So serotonin is going to be involved. But there are other neurochemicals that are involved in mood formation. Serotonin is only one part of those. Figuring out exactly what those chemicals are and how they work in interacting with each other to produce a particular behavior, we're still in the, I'll just say the beginning stages of it, and perhaps I can give an example. We know that if you are pregnant and you experience extreme trauma in a particular part of your pregnancy, generally in the perinatal part of pregnancy, there's something extraordinary that can happen. Cortisol, stress hormones, maternal cortisol, can leach in through the placenta, go right into the baby's brain, and rewire that brain to put it on a permanent state of alert. Now, this has to be a severe trauma for this to happen. It can't be just the normal trauma that's associated, particularly in the later stages of pregnancy. This has to be something dramatic. In fact, a lot of this was studied in, in things like war zones in World War II and was also studied actually in the, that was called the Montreal Winter Experiment. So this is down in the, in the Canadian neck of the woods. At any rate, severe trauma. And that will go and rewire. And that baby, when that baby is born, that baby is born on a permanent state of high alert. So their cortisol levels, which are supposed to be high in the morning and low in the evening, uh, in kids like this who grow up under certain circumstances, you know, they will grow up to be cortisol high in the morning, high in the afternoon, high in the evening. It's high all the time. So they are on a permanent state of alert, which can be exhausting, which can manifest itself as uh, an anxiety disorder, can also manifest itself as a depression. And the kid is not at fault here. And I would also argue that the mother probably would not have wanted to go through the trauma either. There's no fault here either. But it is a a phenomenon that's being studied that actually gums up when we're asking questions about, can we find a gene for depression? Because one of the questions you can ask is, well, okay, if I'm going to look for a gene for depression in you, tell me, what happened to you in your perinatal period? (laughs) Right. You know, no kid's going to know the answer to that. And maybe the mom will only have a dim recollection, but it's a confounder or at least it's a variable that has to be taken into account if you're going to get a clean shot. At, uh, I can go a million on how tough it is to get at the gene for depression. Now, let's do some good news, though, because there's some really good news about this. Depression is, extra- regardless of its origin, regardless of whether you come from a traumatized womb or had a series of really icky things happen to you, or you've got a, a serotonin transporter protein variant and you're more susceptible to it, Depression is extraordinarily amenable to treatment. In fact, it has one of the highest successful treatment rates that exist for any pathology, either a psychopathology or what I would call the more organic pathologies, if you do the following two things. A, you find a competent therapist with which you have a good fit. That's important. You have a therapist that you can talk to that is giving you good counsel and you are taking it. And number two, you have the combination of whatever medication might be prescribed for you, plus a rigorous understanding of cognitive behavior therapy as it directly relates to depression. Are you familiar with CBT, Ben? Should I explain that a little? Not, yeah, not as well as I'd like to be. I'd love for you to explain it. Okay. Cognitive behavior therapy 
is the single greatest talk therapy for fixing, I'll say, or better to say addressing, relieving the symptoms of most affective disorders, both the anxiety and depression. It works better with anxiety than with depression, but it works well with depression. Cognitive behavior therapy has the tacit assumption that the way you think about things will predict the way you feel about things. And the guy who studies this, his name is Aaron Beck. He's also from the University of Pennsylvania. He's in his 90s, Ben, and he's still alive, and he's still doing research on this. Wow. <laughs> it's so great. But he's the father of cognitive behavior therapy. I'll give you an example of how cognitive behavior therapy could work, let's say, with an anxiety disorder. Let's say, are you familiar with imposter syndrome? Have you ever heard that term before? Yes, I have. Yep. Okay. Well, then, and your audience may know also, imposter syndrome, you wake up in the morning and you think you're an imposter. <laughs> you think that if you succeeded in life, it's because of sheer dumb luck. And imposter syndrome usually has that feeling of, you know, I just got here by accident. But also there's usually this dreadful feeling, and here's the source of the anxiety. Somebody's going to find out today what a fraud I actually am. <laughs> so you live in this perpetual fear of being found out that you're a charlatan. And that's imposter syndrome. So if that's crippling for you, what a cognitive behavior therapist might say to you is to do the following. You would identify the imposter syndrome, this feeling of being a fraud, as what we call an NAT, a negative automatic thought. So you wake up in the morning and you have a negative automatic thought. The thing hits you over the head with it. You go to work and you are scared because you're going to have to present at a meeting where people are going to find out what a fraud you are. That is a negative automatic thought. Here's what CBT says to do with it. The first thing it says is counterintuitive. It says, don't try and get rid of that thought because you won't be able to. <laughs> Good luck. You know, don't think of a pink elephant, that kind of thing. Right. Instead, CBT asks you to do something else. It says, what I'd like you to do is that I would like you to think of a more positive, less self-defeating thought at the same time that you think of your NAT, your negative automatic thought. So a positive thought might be, you know, I'm not a fraud. Not always. Sometimes I do things pretty well. So that would be a positive thought. And this really works well, Ben, if at first you don't believe your non-self-defeating thought. <laughs> You know, if your imposter syndrome has been running at you at full speed for years, good luck trying to get rid of it, but good luck also believing the alternative. But CBT asks you to just, it doesn't ask you to believe it. It just asks you to form it, to state it. Some people write it down. So if the imposter syndrome is I'm a fraud, the non-self-defeating thought is, no, I'm not a fraud. And then CBT asks you to do something extraordinary. It says, every time you think of your negative automatic thought, I want you also to think at the same time your non-self-defeating positive thought. In fact, we'd like you to have the negative automatic thought trigger your memory of the positive thought. Let them co-reside together. Don't try and get rid of the negative, and you don't even have to believe the positive, but you just want them to coexist. And then cognitive behavior therapy, this is the B part, the behaviorist part, says this, every time you pair this positive thought with the negative thought, when you make an association so they come out together, I want you to reward yourself with something that you think is good. You reward yourself. One person I know that was doing this kept little jar of jelly beans on her desk. So she thought she was a fraud, and then up comes the positive thought, and when she paired those, she just pop a jelly bean into her mouth because she totally loved jelly beans. 
Now, maybe it should be carrots or broccoli. You take your pick. Bottom line, it has to be. Not a really a reward, though, right? <laughs> yeah. You're not going to get a lot of dopamine off of Brussels sprouts. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you will off of a jelly bean if you like that. Anyway, the real problem with this is figuring out what a reward is because a lot of people that are self motivated, that are in a depression or that are in an anxiety, grips of an affective disorder, have a, only a distant memory of things that used to make them feel good. So they can be a big deal. So a big part of this is figuring out a reward structure that can give you immediate rewards. And what the research literature shows and what Aaron was able to show in spades and has now been done in other places down to even neurological signatures is this. Because the positive thought is being rewarded, but the negative automatic thought is not being rewarded, after a while, the negative automatic thought begins to wither away of its own accord. And the positive thought gets stronger and stronger. Carla Schatz is really good at saying neurons that fire together, wire together. This actually comes out of some terrific work by a lot of Canadian neuroscientists. But to show that, uh, that if you reward one and not the other, after a while, the other goes away and all you'll be left with is the positive one. It takes on average between 66 and 254 days of constantly applying yourself to this. So you can think of it like reps of constantly applying the negative and the positive together before the negative thought begins to go down substantially and you can get almost a reflexive component to the positive. In fact, you can show when it actually works when you start looking forward to the negative automatic thought because you so, are so in love with the reward. <laughs> yeah. And then you get rewarded for the positive. So this seems um, to be one of the most advanced methods of, of making the psychological change? It's the most evidence-based way to have a permanent change in your thought life. No question about it. None comes even close. But the whole idea with the, to say the, about the good news is that if you've got a competent therapist that you're working with, and the therapy, sometimes you need a medication simply because the brain has to get a jump start, which is fine. In the hands of a competent professional, they can be lifesavers. But don't just take it like candy. Do it with the therapy in mind. Have the CBT plus the medications together. Then you can get figures that approach 75 80% successful treatment rate for depression. Like I say, if it's done correctly, it's the highest successful treatment rate of any pathology that humans experience. Very cool. Now, you know, bridging the gap here a little bit between stress and depression. So we spoke a little bit about how you know, a stressful situation creates this very particular neurochemical response or maybe this, this massive amount of cortisol. Is that going to be something that tends to reinforce depression and prevent you from getting out? So I go down this path of finding ways to keep your brain positive and, and get out of anxiety. Maybe it's movement, maybe it's sleep, maybe it's dopamine-driven behaviors. I'm just curious if keeping yourself out of these constant, stressful, anxious, cortisol-ridden states Yep. is a necessary prerequisite to keep you out of depression. Yeah. Well, once again, it would depend on the type of depression ultimately that you're experiencing. For some types of depression, they're amenable very quickly, and a year later, you're done with it. For others, it's a lifelong battle that you have to continually work at. And on the places where there is a lifelong battle, you have to incorporate not just a good fitting therapist and a medication and therapy training associated with CBT, you also have to start actively looking at your lifestyle. Yeah. Because if it's gonna be a chronic condition you have to, uh, have to deal with, then you have to deal with it. And one of the single greatest predictors of lifestyle change directly related to depression has been studied, and actually the biology of this has been studied in some detail, is aerobic exercise. So the more you aerobic exercise, strengthening doesn't do it. 
there's lots of great reasons to strengthen, as you know better than probably anybody on the planet there, Ben. But in terms of aerobic exercise, aerobic exercise directly affects three biochemical systems in the hippocampus that directly seems to affect depression and anxiety. Should we go through those? That biochemistry? I would love to hear that. Absolutely. It is a story that gives me goosebumps. And the reason why is that, you know, in my field, like I said, the three dialects of the, the molecules, the cells, and the behaviors, in a lot of research efforts for answering certain questions, you might get the molecules or you might get the behaviors or maybe you'll get the cells, but very seldom do you have all three of them line up saying the same thing and one causing the other. With exercise, the particular story we're going to be talking about here in a second has both molecular, cellular, and behavioral components to it. So let's start with the behavior first. If you exercise for a period of time, and it's variable, but 30 minutes, 150 minutes in a seven-day period, that the American recommendation is, is, is probably a base, low baseline, but a good one, it, it'll work. Get started on it. You can actually begin treating depression. And every time you've got energy requirements like cortisols that are up or low, or your epinephrine levels, it, you can take your pick of things. Get out there and run. Go for a walk. In fact, it has to be moderate aerobic activity. It doesn't have to be great, which is just walking too fast to sing. If you do that, you see something extraordinary. So that's the behavioral work. You can begin to see behavior changes for sure. And like I say, if you've got a lifestyle issue, then you have to make exercise a permanent part of your life, not an option, but it's to treat a depression. It's not to be fit. You don't care about being fit. You care about being alive. And in this particular case, it's depression. Okay, so there's a cellular component. We now know that if you exercise for a period of time, you increase blood flow to very specific areas of the brain, particularly the hippocampus. And the hippocampus, which is involved in all kinds of things, it's legendary for being involved in memory, but it isn't just involved in memory. It's involved probably in affect regulation. It's profoundly involved in your ability to navigate your environment, interestingly enough, and to navigate not just your physical environment, Ben. We now know that the hippocampus is involved in navigating your social environment. <laughs> you know, what friends you're having, where they are, and those kinds of things. So when you increase blood flow to any to a specific region of the brain, of course, as you know, blood is both the sewage system and the food relief agency of the body. So you're getting food to the areas of the brain that need it, and you're also taking away those lousy reactive oxygen species, those free radicals, the stuff, junk that builds up in the brain that can cause brain damage. You want blood flow to increase in specific areas of the brain. And from a cellular perspective, that's what aerobic exercise does. To me, though, the most interesting work comes from the molecules, which is the third of the pot. If the behavior is the depression and the cells are changing in blood flow to specific regions of the brain, the molecular components are really strong. We know that if you do aerobic exercise, you increase in those areas of the hippocampus brain-derived neurotrophic factor, BDNF. Yep. Right? You're probably familiar with BDNF, yes, sir. man. Yep. We call it miracle growth of the brain, right? It's involved in neural outgrowth, synaptic plasticity. It increases the healthy bed of tissue within, within the hippocampus itself. Brain-derived neurotrophic factor is great. That's not the only thing that exercise does, though. There are two other molecular subsystems that aerobic exercise does a lot with. One of them is that it increases VEGF, vascular endothelial growth factor levels, in those same areas. It's involved in a process we call angiogenesis, which is the ability to stimulate blood vessels to come to a certain spot. So if you're increasing and you increase VEGF in those areas of the hippocampus that are needed, you know what that means? That means you're setting up a signal in the brain to say, hey, 
I want more blood vessels over here. I need more food, and I need a better sewage system. Get these to me, please. And we know that it increases angiogenesis. We now also know that that signal that's changing the blood flow into those areas of the brain also is involved in neurogenesis, making new neurons within the anterior horns of the hippocampus. The third and final system that it gets to, and this is aerobic exercise, moderate aerobic exercise, is increased levels of insulin-like growth factor, IGF, and it's one, so IGF-1, which is also involved in outgrowth, it's in learning, it's involved in neurogenesis and angiogenesis. And the whole reason why I'm saying that is this. It is a very mature story that we are beginning to understand about the powerful effects of aerobic exercise on mental health. So if you've got a, an issue that is going to be a lifelong for you, you owe it to yourself to begin an aerobic program, and you will use it as part of your mental wellness daily regimen, not because you're trying to get fit. Yeah, I'm very familiar with the benefits of aerobic exercise, obviously on the HPA axis, the autonomic nervous system. Sure. I'm very curious if there's ever been any studies to your knowledge of actually studying any other types of exercise. So all I can find when I, when I dig into myokines, as these molecules you're bringing up are myokines, uh -huh, sure. all I can find is anyone that's ever done research only on aerobic training. There's never been anything on any other type of complex movement and I just have this theory that complex movement may be the thing that actually initiates. I mean, the aerobic system is very important in optimizing the HPA axis and obviously the nervous system and the hippocampus. But I'm very curious if you're familiar with anything on any other types of exercise or just what you've seen on endurance work. Yeah, almost none. Yeah. In fact, research dollars seem to have gone in the other direction <laughs> because that a great deal of money is now being thrown at mindfulness training, which is the exact opposite of getting an aerobic workout. It's keeping everything sedentary and, and concentrated, which also has some great benefits. But I've never seen, to answer your question, beyond aerobic training of any kind, I've never seen anything nearly as mature. I've only seen a few things related to balance and vestibular activity. But that itself, the whole idea of balance and exercise is woefully underfunded. Let's put that nicely. And yeah. And so, uh, yeah, I, I don't have it. I think I'm coming to the same conclusion that you have been. I don't see anything out there. Yeah, it's an interesting exploration to acknowledge that maybe mindfulness could actually be integrated into movement and exercise, right? And that's oh, not something people aren't talking about is, is why not do aerobic and mindfulness? Well, you can sort of think of it as like hot and cold, like you're taking a hot and cold bath all at once. <laughs> I have a feeling the brain is going to look at that and go, yippee, let's do it. Well, just even, even doing like a, a meditative walk, right? Like being super aware while you're walking, you're getting this neurochemical or inflammatory myokine response. And you're also getting this idea of centering and, you know, down-regulating the autonomic nervous system would be a super sure. interesting thing to explore. I mean, maybe a little more complex as far as actually skill set to offer it, uh, study participants. But I think as far as doubling your bang for your buck, it's something I advocate for everybody to do is just breathing and walking basically, right? Doing sure. the same thing. Well, you know, there is a body of work that is coming on that is a subset of the aerobic workout, but this was done first at the University of Kyoto and then later on at the National Health Service in the UK. In the UK, they call it green walking, and in the University of Kyoto, they call it forest bathing. Yeah, I love the Kyoto's point of view better. What it shows, though, is that where you walk is almost as important as that you walk. Of course. Yeah. If you walk in green, if you are continually exposed to about 523 nanometers of wavelength, so you're looking at green, and other wavelengths have been tested too, oddly enough, but if you're in a green environment, your executive function, which is your ability to 
I don't know, get things done. It has both cognitive control and emotional regulation associated with it. Your executive function dramatically changes, and you can really dramatically change in the presence of green. We think there's an evolutionary reason for that, because green will focus you. This has actually been done even with ADHD kids, and it appears to be dose-dependent. The more green they're exposed to per unit time, the more focusing ability they get, which is a, certainly also a measure of executive function. The evolutionary reason for that, we think, is really straightforward, Ben. And it's when we came out of the jungle and into the Serengeti, we came from a rainforest that had a lot of water. And now we're on the, the sides of the Ngorongoro crater where we don't have nearly as much water as you would have in a rainforest. So what would happen? If you saw green out there in the Serengeti, in a savanna that's normally just brown, but if you saw green, you would focus on it simply because that told you that there was water underneath that plant and there could be a water source for you, given us how water is now at a premium because we're in the savanna. So we think there is an evolutionary adaptation to the fact that not only do you need to be outdoors, but you need to be outdoors in a green environment in order to get changes in central nervous system regulation. In fact, you can show that if you get out into a green environment, you will get changes. This is done primarily with a GSR clamp. So we're looking at uh, surface sweat on the skin. In 200 milliseconds, you get a change. <laughs> no kidding. Wow. So if you just get out there, within 20 minutes, you're seeing a real change in even vagal tone, which is a, the 10th cranial nerve, a measure of regulation. And by 40 minutes on a regular basis, you're getting a real psychiatric boost. And what you can show is that the more you get out into the green, the less mental health issues you have. And if you can do that on a regular basis, great health can occur. That is a form of meditation. They're just asking you to walk. In the Japanese model, you aren't doing, you know, you're not just walking too fast to sing. You're literally strolling. But you're strolling in an area that has become increasingly peaceful and whatnot. So I would say if mindfulness keeps you sedentary and aerobic workout gets you really, really active, forest bathing is probably in the middle. All give benefit. Yeah, one of your 12 rules for the mind is move. And that's just tying this together really nicely. And have you seen... When you speak of moving as far as being one of these major brain rules, is there any, you know, obviously aerobic is, is a big piece of it, but is it anything particular that you advocate? So could it be riding a bicycle having a similar sure. benefit or is it just this idea as you say this walking in nature being certainly the top of the totem pole, but is there specific things that you've seen and specific changes you've actually noticed in the brain as far as any of your research or any of the research you're familiar of? Familiar? Oh, oh, for sure. And it depends upon the age of the person that's being evaluated. We know that aerobic exercise is good for everybody, whether it's elementary school or high school or old age, aerobics is good. But if you really want to optimize it, in the younger populations, you have to add something to it. You can still get a change in executive function with aerobic exercise, but you can get a much better change if the exercise is itself carried with a cognitive component so that you're not just mindlessly walking, but that you're involved in a soccer match or you're involved in a lacrosse, or you're doing something that requires cognitive involvement. That is especially important for both elementary and for teenage populations. For older populations, not so much. You just need to get out there and, and move around. But for younger populations, cognitive involvement turns out to be critical to getting the strongest executive spike. Now, there's a very interesting idea that I've not seen done, because cognitive involvement is like basketball and soccer, for sure. But what about if you were on a treadmill and playing a video game? 
Given us how it's hard to get a video gamer to exercise, <laughs> you can't, I'll just say that as a prejudice. Yeah. If you can get them on a treadmill, but engage them, would that cognitive involvement give you the same spike in executive function changes that a soccer match might or that uh, basketball? We don't know the answer to that question. But that's uh, sort of where it's headed. So to answer I, I would your question. I would speculate then, you could voice an opinion on this, is I would speculate it would be less simply for the fact that we know that the visual system is very much integrated in the autonomic nervous system, meaning if I'm very much zeroed in on something like a video game, I'm very sympathetically aroused versus being sure. peripheral. So if we're walking outside, it's more of a peripheral gaze. If I'm very focused on something, my autonomic nervous system is going to be very sympathetically oriented. So maybe that would dial down the benefits of, to the brain. Any thought on that? Sure, sure, sure might. Yeah, it might change the vagal tone too. At this point, since none of that research has been done, you know, we're free to speculate and say, yeah, here, do this. To my mind, for 2 million years, we were outdoors. For 99.987% of our life, yeah. our evolutionary life, we have been outdoors. We're not adapted to a video game. We're not adapted to a treadmill, frankly, Ben. We're adapted to running up and down the sides of a crater and then going off into the Serengeti and running to get towards the gazelle or move away from the lion or take your pick of stuff. It's one of the reasons why I think, to your point earlier, I believe that vestibular activity will eventually be found to be an extraordinarily important part of human exercise. That when we just do one thing, like on a treadmill, that's fine. But since our evolutionary history, we were engaging the entire balancing system all the time, working weird muscle groups at odd angles when we were scurrying down a hill or getting away from a snake, that that's going to be the optimal exercise. There's certainly a, a quite a bit of research around flow. And then when I think of balance, I certainly think of, you know, especially for prolonged balance, it's almost being in a flow state because you have to be so psychologically aware. Sure, sure. So well, one of the things that, that mindfulness can do is that it can allow you, it can give you a toolkit for focusing that is not related to a cell phone <laughs> or any other parts of the digital world that people normally engage in. And I'm thinking that the more you can do these focusing things that keep you away from these micro dopamine loop spikes we get into every time we take a look at our texts and our emails, that's going to be all for the better. Yeah. So going through all your 12 rules, I'd love for you to dive into uh, memory a little bit, because I think this is one that a lot of us tend to fight with as we get older, or at least tend to believe that it gets worse. Is that something you tend to find with age? Is it tends to deteriorate? Or is that something that's just a result of our social exposures and our lifestyle now? Nope, it deteriorates. <laughs> nice to meet you, Bill. Thank you very much for having me on. <laughs> that's not true. Memory uneven is the better way to say it is that it unevenly deteriorates. Some types of memory don't deteriorate at all. They do just fine. You can, for long periods of time, have the same vocabulary that you have always had. And that's fine. But for other things like episodic memory, episodic, maybe we should back up a little bit and talk about what we know about memory before we get into the specifics. Would that, would that be okay with you? Yeah, that sounds great. Alrighty. When we think of human memory, a lot of people will think of it like a videotape recorder, and that if you have a very nice videotape recorder, you're going to have a nice memory system, and that's it. Nothing could be further from the truth. There are probably 20 to 30 different memory gadgets in the brain that all work on specific domains of memorizing and recalling something, and that work in a semi-independent fashion from each other. For example, your ability to know that, to remember that the Battle of Hastings occurred in 1066 is very different from the place where you remember how to ride a bicycle. 
And both of those are very different from the place where you remember that if you put your hand on a hot stove, your hand is going to get burned. Those are all separate memory systems. So when we start talking about what things are improving memory and what things are removing memory, we have to talk about what systems that we're talking about. Does that make sense? Yes, for sure. All right, so let's get going on it. There are some things that change as we get older and some things that we don't. One of the biggest things that actually improve when you get older is your vocabulary. You can still get the moments where, and you probably are aware of this, where you've got a tip of the tongue moment, you can't get it, and you can't move, and you're frustrated because that seems to be happening with some frequency. Mm-hmm. That turns out only barely. We react more to it. As we get older, the word Alzheimer's begins to take on a terror that it didn't when we were in our 20s. And so we start putting a premium on certain cognitive losses that I think create an emotional response that is larger than the actual erosion, because you can actually show that vocabulary tends to improve. Also, syntactic processing, which is word arrangement, the ability to work with the words that you have that also seems to improve. So that works fine. Now, there are some things that do erode. One of the biggest is something that we call episodic memory. Episodic memory is the memory for episodes. It's a separate memory system from the 1066 or the burning the stove or riding a bicycle. Episodic memory has characters and interactions and a timestamp on it. If you remember when you graduated from high school and you start to relive parts of those moments, you are recalling an episodic memory experience. That begins to fail as you get older. Another one that begins to fail is working memory. We used to call it short-term memory, but working memory also begins to fail as you get older. And that's where you start thinking, you don't remember, you just put something down. And ever had this experience, Ben? You go down to the basement to get something, and when you get down to the basement, you completely forgot why you're down there. (laughs) Yes. During my bodybuilding career, often, but since retiring, much less, thank goodness. (laughs) My brain seems to be working much better now that I'm out of chronic ball of inflammation. Yeah, well, that changes. Okay, so that working memory begins to fail. Since working memory is a part of executive function, though, anything that can improve executive function is going to improve your working memory. And guess what improves executive function in old age populations? Aerobic exercise. Yeah. Another one that begins to decline is what we call processing speed. 20-year-olds are 75% faster than people in their mid-70s at processing information. And there does not appear to be much you can do about that. That begins to change. And also the ability to ignore distractions begins to change unless you start exercising. Because ignoring distractions, the ability to focus on one thing versus another, is a hallmark executive function skill. And since executive function is improved with aerobic exercise in elderly populations, you can learn not to ignore distractions. So the reason why I'm saying all of this is that it depends on the memory system that's involved. So when we're talking about a particular process, the first question we have to ask is, well, what memory or system are you talking about? One thing I'd love for you to discuss is how male and female brains are different. (laughs) Oh, boy. There has been no greater set of commentaries that I've had over the years (laughs) than getting into that one there, buddy. (laughs) But I'm happy happy to enter into the fray because I actually, as a scientist, you know, I don't care what I believe. I just would like to know what's out there. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so if I start caring what I believe, then I become as culturally prejudiced as the people I regularly throw stones at. So shame on Dr. Medina. Okay. Let's talk about it. The big questions I get asked is, are there differences in the way men and women think about things? Are there sex-based differences in the way men and women process information? There is currently a gigantic food fight about this. Okay. On one side, you've got people like Lisa Elliott, 
and others who are saying, nope, no, there's no change at all. That, in fact, the intra-differences between people are greater than the inter-differences between males and females in mm -hmm. terms of behavior. And to a certain extent, that is absolutely the case. But you have on the other side, guys like Larry Cahill, who say the exact opposite of what Lisa says. Larry says, no, there's all kinds of differences that abound. And we're just in the process of beginning to understand what those are. But to ignore those differences is to ignore a giant swath of biology. And those two, you regularly see them in the literature throwing thunderbolts at each other. Both have great points of view. Both have strong evidence-based logics to their points of view. And both of them are currently wrong. Because the real answer is, we don't know. Right. <laughs> There's only two differences that seem to pop out. One of them is the fact that women have menstrual cycles and men don't, or however you define that. People with menstrual cycles and people without menstrual cycles have different hormonal profiles that profoundly influence their behavior at certain right. times yeah. of the month. And people who do not have a menstrual cycle do not have that difference. So that's something that you can say. That's the first difference. Here's the second one that is a little more interesting to me. It's not particularly controversial, but are you familiar, Ben, with the concept theory of mind? Have you heard that before? No, I haven't. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about theory of mind, because what I'm going to say is that there appears to be differences in the way men and women navigate that skill. Okay. Theory of mind is the ability to understand the intentions and motivations of somebody else. You get a theory of how, they're, how they tick. If that makes sense. Sure. The granular behavior underneath that is the ability to understand the rewards and punishment systems inside another person's head with very little cueing. So that it's close to mind reading. It's not mind reading, but it's as close as I think. Almost like can. emotional intelligence. Like, yeah, I have a real hard time with that with those words. I don't know what an emotion is, and I certainly don't know what intelligence <laughs> is. All right. I know what theory of mind is. <laughs> okay. So, but it's the ability. There's a boundary with this theory of mind which is the ability to understand at all times that the person that you are looking at and are trying to understand, their rewards and punishment systems are different than your, your own emotions, your own rewards and punishment systems, but that's okay. And it's also important to understand that they're not going to react like you because they're not you. They're going to react like they do. So I call it John Medina's second law of marriage. What is obvious to you is obvious to you. <laughs> and theory of mind is filled with that. So theory of mind can be measured by a psychometric test that has strong reliability, strong internal, external validity, scores associated with it, and you can actually take it online. It's called the RME, Reading the Mind in the Eyes test, and it will test your theory of mind. It will give you a quantitative score. It was developed by Simon Baron Cohen at Oxford, who has a very famous cousin. Simon Baron Cohen is the autism guru of the UK, but his cousin is Sasha Baron Cohen. Right. I to, yeah. <laughs> that so they're family reunions, you know. You got you got neuroscience <laughs> and you got Borat. That must be some meeting. Sounds like a party. <laughs> yeah, but at any rate, this RME test, which you can take, Robin Dunbar, another Oxford don was able to show that women in what are called second and third order theory of mind tasks are twice as good at it as men are. And that's actually been shown in lots of different places. Anita Woolley over at Tufts showed a very similar thing. These are called social sensitivity scores. I'm not quite sure what to do with that. Certainly Larry Cahill would say, oh, you could do with it just easy. We had different biological functions. And Lisa Elliott says, yeah, that's because you're not a woman. 
<laughs> totally get it on both sides. Yet, when the dust settles and clears eventually, the two differences that will remain and will remain strongly are menstrual-related behavior changes and a powerful sense of theory of mind. So theory on, you know, obviously, testosterone impacting dopamine, there's been a strong correlation there. So in theory, then men having higher testosterone may have higher dopamine levels? That turns out not to be the case. Dopamine is wildly variable between individuals. You should probably know that first. It's also quite variable in terms of what age you're sampling at. One of the hallmarks of the aging brain is the dopaminergic system just starts to go away. It's not as responsive. You're not making as many. Yeah, the system is changing. So it depends on the age, and it also depends in some part on the individual. Those individual things are so not well worked out. If you take a look at the graphs of most of those papers, Ben, the error bars are nearly as big as the bar itself. <laughs> so, and I think it's because we do not yet know enough to be able to settle those data down in strong enough terms that we can actually give causal uh, representations that yes, testosterone and dopamine are related this way. I don't think that's well known. Okay. Could you speak to, or maybe provide an opinion on, and this may be a completely an opinion-based question, but whether or not, how you feel about this kind of two-way street, maybe described best as a brain creating the mind versus the mind creating the brain. Yeah. So do you understand what I, what I mean when sure. I say that? Okay. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'd love to have you speak to that. Okay, I'll give an opinion because I have no idea. <laughs> I can say this. This is how I look at it because I get asked that a fair amount. I don't mean to be flipped with it at all. It's just that I'm not, yeah, I'm not even sure what consciousness is, but I'm a grumpy scientist. Hopefully I'm a nice guy, but because I have to work with psychiatric disorder behavior that I have to tie to it, uh, region in the helix, I can't afford to live in standard deviations of great turbulence and make anything happen. What I usually say is this, the mind is something the brain does. That's how I say it. And then I give the following metaphor from Frank Lloyd Wright. Frank Lloyd Wright, the very famous architect, right? Apparently, he was very interested when he would walk into a room, he was not interested in the walls. He was interested in the space that the walls created. And he wanted to know the relationship between those various spaces when he was busy designing something. Here's the metaphor I use when I lecture about this Frank Lloyd Wright opinion. Imagine, Ben, if you will, if you're in a house, let's pull the roof off of it so we're just looking at the rooms. We're gonna pour a bunch of jello into that floor plate, into that house. And when the jello sets up, we're gonna make the walls magically go away, and all we're gonna have are blocks, square blocks of jello. Can you see that in your head okay? Yes, I can. Okay, well, those blocks, that is, is how Frank Lloyd Wright looked at things, the relationship between those two. What I usually say in lecture is this. The brain, the neurons, are the walls of the house. The mind that coexists with the brain, the mind is the jello. The mind is the space. Now, are the walls and the space the same thing? They are not. Would one exist without the other? They could not. So, whereas the nerves are the walls and the mind is the space, Really, it is. The mind is something the brain does. The mind is something the brain forms. And then I leave it at that. So you're of, of the belief then that the mind does exist in the brain? Insofar as you can define the mind as a verb, yeah. Sure. Interesting. Yeah. So, I mean... But as an entity all by itself, I don't think it does. No, I'm, I'm not sure even what it is. Right. There's just this thought that we are this ultimate neurochemical soup yeah. that is created based on our environment and based on our actions and our movement and all these things that you make the you know the 12 rules from yeah. and based on your proportion of these different neurochemicals in the soup 
may really directly impact the way your mind works, whether you're motivated, whether you're happy, whether you're sad, whether you're depressed. Sure. So that certainly goes that way. But now the, my thought being, man, I'd love to hear your opinion. It probably can go the other way too. Meaning like if I have a positive, happy thought, it could probably create the neurochemical cascade as well. So well, just, that's, that's the whole idea behind stress perception, isn't it? Remember, mm-hmm. physiology is the same, close to the same. So what makes you stressed or what makes you feel pleasurable is a mind thing to say, isn't it? Uh, maybe I'm happy today. And so when I have this physiology that's coming on, I will interpret that physiological profile as happy. Or maybe something lousy happened to me today, also a mind thing. So I will interpret the physiology that's coming up in a negative light. But whether it's positive or negative is less to do with what's going on below the neck than what's going on between the ears. But if I sat down in meditation with a completely you know, unpainted canvas in the morning, my unconscious mind is relatively unscathed at that point. And I sit down and I decide that I'm going to create happiness and I can embody this happiness or I can embody whatever gratitude feeling you want to create. Sure. What, what, do we see an appropriate neurochemical response from that? I'll just have to use the word might. Might, yeah. Know. It might. I know this, and I am necessarily a reductionist, so please forgive me there, Ben. There are certain antipsychotic medications that I can give to a patient or the, the psychiatrist can give to a patient. And when I do, when that happens, their hallucinations, as florid as they might be, many of them go away. Some of those antipsychotic medications have been lifesavers and have allowed people to function really well. That happens because that antipsychotic medication binds to certain biochemicals, certain mm-hmm. receptors in the brain, and cause that hallucination to die. Now, I can change one carbon on that antipsychotic medication or displace one atom of oxygen. And when I get rid of that carbon or displace that atom of oxygen, now the antipsychotic medication can no longer bind to the receptors in the brain that it's supposed to and the hallucinations stay. So I can toggle a hallucination, a complex behavior on and off with the presence of a single lousy atom the answer is, yes, I can. It is reductionist. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, certainly seems like you know, your, your neurochemistry is probably determining your mind. It seems that way to, to so. in the most logical way, yeah. Sure. But um, remember, I have a confirmation bias, Ben. You're talking to a molecular biologist, okay? <laughs> I'm not a philosopher. So right. I'm going to make all the huge errors that most people in my field make whenever they attempt to wax philosophically over things they have no depth of academic experience to provide. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to quote you here on something, John. I absolutely love this quote. Your brain acts like a muscle. The more activity you do, the larger and more complex it becomes. Sure. Whether that equates to more intelligence is another issue, but one fact is indisputable. What you do in your life physically changes what your brain looks like. And I think that uh, quote will really resonate with my demographic and with many people. And I absolutely love that. And I think it's so important that people know that your body and your mind are a reflection of your life and not only what you do, but how you do it. And I think if we learn to just take control of the things we do and the way we do it, having an amazing brain and an amazing body is well within your grasp. And I'm so grateful for all of your wisdom. Are you working on any books now? I I need some new information from from John on the brain. Oh, for sure. Well, there's a couple of things I'm working on. One of them is a business book asking questions about, is there anything in the, we know in the brain sciences that can influence business practice? There's simple things, but stuff that then, you know, in spades as well, we now know that if you yell at somebody, become verbally aggressive at work, which has been measured at work, you will destroy their working memory for about 120 minutes. 
Really? You know, they, they can't process information because th what they're beginning to focus in is that they're focusing on the fact that they were assaulted. So they're not really caring about how much, how, said. what's the amplitude of the yelling and what's the duration of it? Is that yeah. the measure? <laughs> well, the reduction goes from 3.7 to 1.8 on a Raven's test. That's an amazing. <laughs> I have no <laughs> idea what that means, but okay. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We're going to do a pre-post. Okay. What we're, there's a, something called the Raven's matrix test <laughs> and uh, it measures working memory. Uh, and so if we do a pre and then uh, so you have your working memory and then I yell at you and then measure your ravens afterward and then measure successive minutes after that, your short-term memory is just gone. Wow. So when I use, so that kind of thing in a business book setting, a lot of managers yell at their employees to try and get them more productive. And the weird thing about it is if you really wanted to manage your employee well, you know what you'd do? You'd make them feel as safe as possible in front of you as opposed to yelling at them so that you don't weaponize your mouth, but instead yeah. open up your heart. And I guess it's the same for children, right? But I think every boss and every manager and every parent has experienced this at some point. I'm sure you have as well. It's, yeah. You know, it's, it's the first time is really, really nice and kind and warm and welcoming and loving. And the second time is a little bit less loving. And the third time is, is pretty blunt. And, and when you finally get to the fourth time, it's like, get off your ass and get this done now. It's kind of the way it works with children. <laughs> um, so you know, what's the fourth intervention there instead of instead, you know what I'm saying? Like it's always this progression from super kind and thoughtful and it doesn't work. And then the next progression is a little less kind and thoughtful. And, and eventually it's like, all right, you need to do this now. So yeah. do you have another suggestion for an intervention to, to get people to take action? Yeah. Find another employee. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or how, find another child, right? Like how do you, how do you, how do you get around that one? <laughs> yeah. Well, if we stay with children for a second and then maybe map over to, because in one, at least in one case, asking questions about, are you a good parent and are you a good boss was addressed in an evidence-based way. It was delightful work with children. But if we stay with children for a second, you should never escalate ever, ever, and especially with small children, because what they do is if they tend to focus on the Delta, Oh, that was a change because you started out nice and now you're not so nice. Totally. So one, what they don't focus on was what you want them to do. They focus on the delta, man. They focus on the difference. So the way out of that is to say the same thing in the same tone over and over again. And slow and steady wins the race. You always have very clear rewards and punishment systems. And they're done in the same projecting calm manner. The fact that they're about to get a timeout should be said in the exact same voice that it is when you say it's time for dinner. Because if you escalate, the kid is going to look at that and focus in on the escalation and not on the thing you want done. So for kids, this is a long haul answer. You never can think of it in short term at all. So if you've made a habit of making your rewards and punishments really, really clear, and the kid knows darn well what the expectations are, you only have to add one other ingredient and then you get compliance that it just skyrockets. Are you familiar with inductive parenting? Have you heard of that term before? No, I haven't. Okay. Inductive parenting, it's, there's an adult version of this too, business, which is why I'm bringing this up. Inductive parenting goes like this. Let's say you want your child not to touch a dog, the next door neighbor dog. You could say, don't touch that dog. Okay. And what is the compliance rate for that? Well, the compliance rate for that is actually isn't all that high. <laughs> if you then add the following sentence to that, to your command, say, don't touch that dog. That dog has a history of biting and I don't want your hand bitten off. You have now explained the rule. And because you have explained the rule, you have de-escalated the, the issue. And now they can have, it's actually making the issue a third party that you could both take a look at together and say, oh, I don't want my hand getting bitten off either. Compliance rates soar. That's called inductive parenting. So at any one particular time, the cognate of this for in an adult situation is that the boss comes to the employee and explains the reason. 
for the command or for the, the need for it as an inductive form. If they still don't do it, have the rewards and punishment systems in place for sure, but never escalate. Because if you do escalate, then that's what they will remember. That's amazing advice. In other words, it takes an ex- it's called executive function, and th- there's such a funny metaphor in that because it's all about executive function, like in a business setting, Ben. <laughs> but the whole idea of you being able to rein in, you know where we get this from? I know we got to go in a second, but where we get this from is from Beth Loftus's great work on something that's called weapons focus. And maybe we can close, at least in part, with this because this is a natural thing for the brain to do. Let's say you're in the United States and you get assaulted by a firearm. Well, that's not all that uncommon around here. But let's say you're going to survive this assault, but you're weapons competent. So what happens is that you know that it was a 9mm and the safety was off and the guy meant business, okay? If you've had something horrible happen to you that way, you will have complete amnesia, anterograde and retrograde amnesia, on three hours before and three hours after the assault has occurred. You don't have a strong memory of the events that occurred around the assault. And you also don't have a strong memory of the perpetrator, the person who's doing it, what color hair they had, what color eyes, whatnot, except, Ben, if they've had a weapon. And if they have a weapon, you are nearly eidetic, not with their eye color and not with their hair color, because you don't remember that at all. You're three hours and three hours. But if they've had a weapon, you remember everything about the weapon. Yeah, it was a nine millimeter. Yeah, the safety was off. Yeah, he had it at an angle just like this because he meant business. It's called weapons focus. And the reason why is that under severe acute fight or flight, the brain immediately locks down on the source of the threat and forgets everything else in an attempt to make an assessment of that threat to see what they're going to need to do. If you yell at somebody, you've created a delta. If you yell at somebody, you have weaponized your mouth. And the employee is going to look at that mouth, and the kid is going to look at that mouth. Anybody's going to look at that mouth and not see a command that makes sense to do. It's going to see a weapon. And they will not remember your command or your instruction or all the other things you want them to do. They will remember the fact that you weaponized yourself. Is That's this amazing the- book in brain ru- or amazing info in, in Brain Rules for Baby? This, what I'm just talking about is the book that's coming out. It'll be okay. probably called Brain Rules for Business. Okay, because this seems like it would be important for parenting as well. Um, I believe there's a part of this that is in Brain Rules for Baby, yeah. Okay, we'll definitely have to check that out. Dr. Medina, you're an absolute gem and an incredible storyteller and, and a great, great person to chat with. And I'm so grateful for your time. And thank you for your continued passion to this uh, amazing topic. So thank you for your time and your research. And i um, super grateful for you being here. Well, thank you very much for the invitation. Ben, it was delightful to meet you. All right. Have a great day. All righty. You take care now. Bye-bye. That's a wrap, ladies and gents. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I'm going to give you some of my brain hacks. A lot of people ask what I do to optimize my brain and what I really see as things that make a difference or what I'll call needle movers things that really move the needle from my mind. Well, I'll tell you the biggest one is definitely without shadow of a doubt, sleep. And sleep has the greatest impact on your brain without question. And the thing that has the greatest impact on sleep is going to be your light exposure and your circadian rhythms. So the one of the best things I do for my sleep and for my mind is getting outside every single day. Dr. Andrew Huberman of Huberman Lab from Stanford has been posting recently a lot about the necessity of seeing the change from the morning yellows and oranges and pinks in the sky into blues. So if you watch the sunrise, you're going to see the light start to shift from you know these really vibrant pinks and oranges and yellows in the morning 
into the blue. And seeing that shift has been something that's been recently correlated with allowing your brain to start setting your rhythm. Conversely, in the evening, seeing that shift on the way down is a great way to start allowing your brain to start producing melatonin to shut you down. So that's one of my greatest brain hacks is as often as I can getting out to see the sunrise and the sunset. So I literally have these numbers of sunset and sunrise sent to me on notification that says, hey, Ben, this is the time the sun is rising. This is the time the sun is setting. If you can get out there, whether by yourself with your kids or by any means necessary, get out there even just for a few minutes to see this sunrise and sunset. That's a big one for me. Another one for me is meditation. So I think it's really easy to get caught up in having to do. We have long to-do lists and most of it's things that we probably don't need to really do. So really making sure that I make 10 minutes a day to meditate and slow down my brain. It'll really allow me to be in this alpha state more often and focus. And you can tell if you pay attention to me on the podcast, you can tell when I've meditated and when my brain is scattered. I mean, I can tell. If you can tell, I can certainly tell my ability to slow down, my ability to articulate myself, my ability to find my words, my ability to ask great questions is almost one-to-one correlated with my ability to sit down and meditate. And I know a lot of you are having a hard time meditating. Don't be attached to what it's supposed to look like or what it's supposed to feel like. Just spend a minimum of 10 minutes being and this idea of being rather than doing. You know, we're so attached to always having to do something. Meditation is not necessarily doing anything. You know, it could be mindful to begin with. Just pay attention to the single point of focus. Maybe it's your breath. Maybe it's your hearing. Maybe it's the way your body feels against the seat. Anything like that. Single point of focus. And set the objective. And I talked about this recently on the Q&A with Ashley. Is objective outcomes are very important to our success. Set the objective to do 10 minutes every day for 30 days. And if you really want to go hard, I suggest going over and picking up Sam Harris's app, Waking Up where he'll invite you to do 50 days in a row of 10 minutes minimum. And I think that's a game changer. And he's an amazing, amazing meditation coach who does a better job than anyone I've ever come across yet as far as telling you what to think about, when to think about it, and really directing your focus in a progressive way. So over 50 days, it gets significantly harder. Anyways, guys, podcast brought to you by Bubs because Bubs is awesome. They're hooking you up with 20% off bubsnatural.com. Don't forget to head over there and use the code intelligence to get 20% off. Intelligence is spelt I-N-T-E-L-L, two L's, I-G-E-N-C-E. Have an amazing day. If you love this podcast, if you love any of the podcasts, I would love to hear from you. And please share this podcast with one person you know and love because this mission is strong. It's powerful. We're changing the world every single day. And thousands and thousands of people deserve to live a life that they absolutely love and the body that they love. And we're bringing in the world's greatest experts on to share their brilliance and wisdom with you every Monday and every Thursday. We may even bump that up in the near future. Have a great day, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in to Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Pikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.